following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Um, buckle in, because for the last two months, I've had to be very time conscious when I preach, because you know I've got, I've got to get done by a certain time so I can do the second service. So... We're going to be here a while, all right? Um, so I have no time restraint today. Not really. You know, there was a, the, the man that uh, really, the farmer in our town I grew up in that started, really started our church. He was a joker, and he would always, if we had a guest preacher, he'd always say, you can preach however long you want, we go to lunch at noon. So um, anyway, we'll, we'll try and not try and be time conscious today, I I care about time way too much, so, um, but anyway, I can talk a long time too. Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 5. To begin today, let's read uh, verses 3 through 10. Uh, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, one of the fascinating aspects of building relationships is coming to understand what really makes some people excited and also where their sore spots are, right? So, so if you're married, you, you, you hopefully know those things about your spouse, that there are certain things that are near and dear to their heart, and there's other things that, oh boy, if we go down that road, uh, it's, it's going to hit them in a, in a different way. And, uh, and then there's other matters where, where maybe other people are, are really passionate, and, and, and you just don't care about that thing at all. Now, so for example... Now, I love food, and, and I have always enjoyed eating. Now, my mom uh, would talk about, you know, when we go on a trip, that's the first thing I want to know, where are we going to eat? Uh, I've always enjoyed eating, and so I've never understood people that just eat out of necessity. Like, if I don't eat, I'm going to die, so I guess I'll, you know, eat a carrot. Uh, I've never understood those kinds of people. You know, I, I get excited as well about sports. I, I can get really fired up watching a game. Uh, I, I enjoy theology. I enjoy uh, preaching and those things. I get passionate about those things. I, I love to get outside and, and, and do manual labor. I know that's weird, but, but I just really love tackling a project outside. But then there's other things that you know, other men really love, love that, that I don't necessarily get that excited about. You know, I've, I've never really gotten into hunting or fishing, for example. I think I'm too patient or too impatient uh, to, to just sit and, and watch a bobber go up and down in the water. And uh, and I'm sure that you could come up with a similar list. And uh, hopefully you have some sense of your spouse's list, what your kid's list would be, what your uh, parent's list would be, and uh, close friends and so forth. Because understanding people's passions, understanding what they care about and what they don't care about is, is really helpful to expressing genuine love and care for those people. And last week, we began studying the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, 
uh, verses 3 through 10, and we saw that these eight sayings are an important expression of God's heart. They, they tell us what God loves, uh, what things uh, are, are near and dear to God. And, and I say that because each beatitude begins with the divine pronouncement, blessed. And so we saw last week that this means that, 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 that God's favor or God's approval rests on these people. So God loves someone who is poor in spirit, someone who mourns after a godly manner, and someone who is meek. Those are the three that we covered last week. So if you want to receive God's blessing, you want to please God and, 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 and make Him happy, so to speak, then developing these qualities is a great place to start. And this morning, we're going to cover the remaining five. We really won't uh, we'll just touch on verse 10 uh, because uh, we'll cover it in, in detail next week with verses 11 and 12. And, and so the next beatitude in the list is in verse 6 where Jesus says that God's blessing rests on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So verse 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, the way I would describe this quality is, is that this is someone who is passionate for practical righteousness. Now, to begin with, uh, some people have wondered if Jesus is talking here about, uh, not about practical righteousness, but about what we oftentimes call imputed righteousness. So, so in other words, that's the righteousness, uh, the righteousness of God that is credited to us when we receive the gospel. So, if, that's where what, if that were what Jesus means, then verse 6 would essentially be a promise that God will justify, that God will declare righteous all who desire it. But, but that's almost assuredly not what Jesus means here. Uh, because righteousness is, is never used that way uh, in, in other places throughout the book of Matthew. And, and Jesus doesn't really talk that way either. So, so the most natural meaning is that Jesus is describing here practical righteousness. He's describing a life of obedience to God's commands that reflects his character. So, so, so living a righteous life. And notice how this blessed man pursues this type of righteousness. Jesus says he hungers and thirsts for righteousness. So, so you can imagine what he means there. He's picturing someone here who is never content with where he is at. He is, he is hungry. Uh, he, he's not on spiritual cruise control, you know, just kind of casually strolling through the Christian life, taking it as it comes. You know, instead, he is always hungry, always thirsty for more righteousness. Now, I think of someone here who's, who's always evaluating, you know, where am I doing well? Where am I righteous? Where do I need to be better? And if someone is praying, you know, Lord, uh, give me grace to, to continue to change and to grow. This person is, is strategizing, like, like, how can I do a better job of not feeding the flesh and, and instead feeding the Spirit? He's disciplining himself. He is straining forward for every ounce of righteousness that he can achieve. Now, now I want to be clear here that, that Jesus is not talking about self-righteousness. That's going to be a pig topic that's going to come up uh, later on in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus is going to condemn those who pursue a righteousness 
that is not in the heart. Instead, it's just a big show to impress people and, and to gain praise of men. No, he's talking about genuine righteousness from the heart. Someone who wants to be like the Savior, to please and glorify Him. And Jesus says He loves this sort of person. God's blessing rests on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So so how about you? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are you striving with all your might to become like the Savior, to to reflect His character and, and His commands in all of life? Now, now, admittedly, you might have a really long ways to go before you uh, could claim the title righteous. And you may not feel very righteous. And that's okay. You know, because notice that Jesus does not say, blessed are the righteous. What's He say? He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the reason Jesus says it that way is because he knows that we all have our own race to run. Based on our own strengths and weaknesses, based on the baggage we have from the past, and and he also understands that, that we are all at different stages of the race. So whether you've been saved for two weeks or, or 70 years, we all of us can hunger and thirst to take the next step in our spiritual growth. So, so don't worry today about someone else's righteousness. Now, don't look at this verse and, and think about how do I compare to the guy next to me or the guy in front of me or behind me. Now, focus on your race and then run hard to please the Lord. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then know that, that even if you have a really long ways to go, because we all do, right? We're all a long ways from the righteousness of God in our practical character. As long as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you are blessed of the Lord. He is pleased with you for your effort. And notice as a result, the promise that awaits you, God's promise is, is that you will be satisfied with righteousness. So he says there, they shall be filled. Now now I mentioned last week, that each of the promises in the Beatitudes ultimately anticipates eternity. So, so remember that, that the first promise in verse 3 and the last promise in verse 10 are both the kingdom of heaven. All right? So, so, and, and all the other promises relate to that, uh, the, the kingdom. So, so the focus is ultimately on heaven. So therefore, when Jesus promises that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be, will be filled... He's ultimately looking ahead to our glorification, to the day when we see Christ and we are made like Him and we are perfectly righteous in every way. And if you are someone that does hunger and thirst for righteousness, this promise that you will be filled is a wonderful gift. Because so often we are all frustrated and Uh, discouraged by our sin and our lack of progress. We want to change, right? But it just doesn't happen nearly as fast as we wish it did. But Jesus says, keep going. Keep fighting that sin. Keep fighting that temptation. Because someday you will be filled. I I will finish the process that is taking place. 
But I also believe that Jesus is promising here at least some satisfaction today. Now, now I won't ever reach perfect righteousness this side of glory. I've got a long ways to go, and so do you. But the New Testament consistently promises that by God's grace, I can make progress, right? I, I can progressively take on the nature of my Savior. I mean, just a a few weeks ago, we saw in 2 Peter that we can grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that may not happen as fast as we would like it to, but God is changing you if you're in Christ. So, in a right sense, be satisfied. Be thankful for, for all that God has done. And then just keep going. Keep hungering and thirsting. Keep pressing forward. So, so this really is a great verse, because it challenges us to pursue righteousness with all of our strength. We need to discipline ourselves to godliness, as 1 Timothy 4, 7 says. And it also gives us tremendous encouragement that, that as you work hard, God sees your effort. He is pleased, and someday He will fulfill your desire. You will never again hunger for righteousness because you will be righteous. That's a wonderful gift. So, so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then uh, the fifth beatitude teaches that God's blessing rests on the merciful. So, so verse 7 uh, says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And the quality uh, that Jesus has in mind here is a compassionate heart for the weak and the afflicted. So, so you know, we talk oftentimes, you know, Scripture talks a lot about the concepts of grace and mercy. And, often, and there really is a lot of overlap in, in meaning between those two ideas. Uh, but if there's any difference in meaning, uh, mercy uh, would be distinct in the fact that, that mercy is directed towards those who are weak. Those who are afflicted, and especially uh, those who have sinned or, or have some sort of significant spiritual struggle. So, so people who need mercy, people to whom you give mercy, are people who are in a desperate plight, whether that's practically speaking or spiritually speaking. And, and incredibly, despite the fact that our God is holy, just, transcendent, set apart from creation, I think it's interesting that, that one of the primary ways that God describes himself in Scripture is as merciful. So, a fascinating example of this comes in Exodus chapter 34. And a God in this passage reveals his glory to Moses. And notice how God describes himself. It says, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we should all be thankful. Now, not just that God shows mercy, but, but that God's heart is merciful. He is filled with mercy. And, and, and we should be thankful for that because without the mercy of God, we would all be hopelessly lost. And Jesus says that, that God wants us to develop that same heart of mercy. And I do think it's interesting that he doesn't say, blessed are those who show mercy. He says, blessed are those who are merciful. 
And so it's not just enough that, you know, occasionally you, you drop a few bucks in the Salvation Army at Christmas or, or, or you once in a while give a sandwich to a homeless guy on the side of the road. No, God wants us to develop a, a merciful heart. That's the idea. I'm reminded of Micah 6, verse 8. It says there, God says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, God doesn't just want you to do some merciful things. He wants you to be a lover of mercy, quick to show compassion and care. Now, so let's just think about that. I mean, when you meet someone who is enduring extreme poverty, you see a homeless man on the side of the road, or, or, or you come across someone with a major disability, now, is it your natural heart to think, what did that guy do to mess up his life? Or, or how can I get away from this annoying situation as quickly as I possibly can? Or, or do you look at people with compassion? Is your impulse to, to grieve over the effects of sin and the curse and long for the day that Jesus fixes it all? Of course, the primary application of this beatitude has to do with how we respond when people sin against us or, or against others. Now, so when people sin against you, are, are you quick to judge, to, to, to rip into them and be harsh, to assume the worst? Are you quick to look down your nose at them and think, you know, what a moron, what a fool? Or do you lovingly grieve over sin? Are you eager to forgive? Are ready to think the best about other people? Longing for restoration? And folks, that's mercy. And for the true Christian, this mercy should always flow from a deep appreciation for the mercy that we have received in the gospel, right? We have no right to be unmerciful people because because we had an incredible sin debt that God forgave us. You think of the parable of the uh, unforgiving servant. What right do we have to be unmerciful people when God has forgiven us an infinite debt? So, so if you want to be a merciful person, the, the best solution simply is just constantly live uh, with, an, with an awareness of the fact that I am a sinner. I have broken God's law. I deserve judgment. And, and God has been merciful to me. And when you live with that awareness, there's no room. There's no room left to be unmerciful towards others. And what a blessing it is to know, though, that as we develop this mercy, that God approves. God loves the merciful. And as a result, He promises the merciful that they will receive God's mercy. So so He says, He he promises in verse 7, they shall obtain mercy. Now, Now, the qualifier, God's mercy, is important, right? Because... Because you won't necessarily receive mercy from other people if you are merciful. But Jesus is the ultimate example of this. I mean, Jesus was the epitome of mercy. But did he receive mercy from men? No. They crucified him. They hated him. Despite the fact that he was merciful. And maybe you've been there too. 
I mean, there's someone that you show mercy upon mercy, you are patient, you are forgiving, you are gracious, and they just throw it back in your face. They're harsh, they're critical, they're nasty. And that's difficult. But, but even if sinners are unmerciful to you, even if they, they do not recognize, they do not appreciate the mercy that you show, Jesus sees. And Now, I must clarify that, that, that Jesus is not saying here that we earn mercy by being merciful. He says, he says blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So, so we might read that and think that he's saying, well, well if, if in order for me to receive mercy, specifically the mercy of salvation, I have to earn it by being merciful myself. And, and adding to that potential is, is turn over to chapter 6. And notice what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15. So this is right after the Lord's Prayer. And really, this concept is closer right. He says in verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So the question then is, is Jesus saying that we earn the mercy of God by being merciful ourselves? Do, do I earn salvation by compassionate deeds? Well, well, of course, that can't be what Jesus means based on all sorts of other uh, passages of Scripture that make clear that, that salvation is totally of grace. I think we could also add that that, that that just defies the idea of mercy itself, right? You can't earn mercy. Otherwise, it's not mercy. Uh, but as well, uh, when you compare chapter 5, verse 7, with the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6, it's pretty clear that the mercy that Jesus has in mind is not the mercy of, of justification, the, the mercy that makes me a Christian. No, he, he's talking about the ongoing forgiveness that, that believers need to maintain a right relationship with God. So, so look at chapter 6, verse 12. This is part of the Lord's Prayer. Of course, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer of Christians, not the prayer of an unbeliever, primarily at least. And he says we are to pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I believe you know, verses 14 and 15 are really an explanation of that prayer request. So, so what Jesus is talking about in both places is the fact that that we need ongoing forgiveness. That God gives ongoing forgiveness as we forgive others. So when I sin, when I fail God, my fellowship, my intimacy with God is affected by my sin. But as I am merciful, and as I come to God asking for forgiveness and grace, He is merciful to me. And he restores me to a right relationship with himself. So chapter 5 verse 7 is saying to Christians that as we show mercy to other people, we can be sure that God will be merciful to us. That when I sin, and I do often, that, that he will be faithful to forgive me and to restore me to himself. And folks, that is a precious hope because we sin all the time. But it is such a blessing to know that God is merciful and forgiving. 
And that even though I fail him often, he is faithful to forgive and he is faithful to welcome me into fellowship. And someday, he's going to mercifully welcome me into his presence, into his glorious light for all of eternity. So, so folks, this, this, next, this beatitude here in verse 7, being merciful, it's not always easy, right? Expressing mercy is a real challenge. But God sees when we are merciful, and he gives invaluable mercy to us. So keep at it. Develop a compassionate heart that forgives and is merciful and is generous to others. And then the sixth beatitude teaches that God's blessing rests on the pure in heart. So, so verse 8 of chapter 5 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the quality that Jesus has in mind here is godly sincerity. And I define it that way because throughout Scripture, the heart always speaks of the very center of who I am. So so to be pure in heart means that I am clean or I am sincere at the very center of my being. So specifically, it means that my driving desires, that the deepest motivations of my heart, what really makes me tick, that it is pure, it is not divided between the Lord and my sinful passions. And the remainder of the sermon really bears that out, that, that that's exactly what Jesus means. That he is focusing on the heart and on the motives behind what we do. Because Jesus is going to go on to say in this sermon, for example, that it's not enough. You know, I shouldn't celebrate simply the fact that I don't murder people. God expects me not to have anger in my heart. He's going to say it's not enough that I don't commit adultery. He says I instead need to to eradicate lust from my heart. He's going to say in chapter 6 that I need to pray. I need to fast. And I need to give. Not for the praise and glory of men. But instead because I love the Lord and I sincerely want to please Him. So a pure heart is an undivided heart that is wholly committed to the Lord, His and His alone. Now, now I want to just qualify that by saying that that the fact is, is that I will never achieve absolute purity of of heart in this life, right? As long as I have a sin nature, uh, my motives are are going to be polluted with selfishness and pride. And and Jesus knows that, right? Psalm 103, verse 14 says, He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. So, so, so don't read this verse and, and respond with despair. Like, woe is me, I'm, I'm so, so far away from doing this, what's the use? And we just saw that God promises to be merciful to the merciful. But, but He does at the same time expect you to continually examine and refine your heart. So you should be working to eradicate wicked motives and wicked desires and to replace them with godly ones. You know, specifically, so, so you should work to overwhelm your pride and, and, and your sinful passions with, with, with a sincere love for God and a vision of His glory and majesty. Yeah, and, and by the way, I mean, that's how you make progress here. You know, let's say you're, you're really frustrated by how, 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 how you're inclined to seek the praise of men. 
You know, the way that you stop being driven by the praise of man is not to focus on, on how much you love the praise of men. You instead eradicate it by focusing on the Lord. And the more you see Him, the more you grow a love for Him, the less room there will be in your heart to live for the praise of people. So, so Christian, pursue a pure heart of sincere love for God. As, as the song, O Great God, says, we should be praying, Lord, let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. We want it all gone. We want to be holy and pure. And, and pursue that with the assurance that God sees your progress even if no one else does. Now, there are a few things that are more uh, frustrating in, in life that, than when people misinterpret your motives. You ever done something out of the kindness of your heart and people twist it to be some, you know, evil, you know, horrible thing that you did and you're like, dude, I was just trying to be nice. But but God never misjudges. He sees the heart and he cares. I think of 1 Samuel 16 verse 7 says, the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And, And when God sees a pure heart, When God sees sincerity, He is pleased, and God's blessing rests on you. And as a result, Jesus promises divine acceptance and intimacy. So Jesus promises that the pure in heart, He says, they shall see God. Now, of course, no sinner uh, today can, can physically see God with our eyes, because if we were to see God in His full glory, I mean, we would evaporate, right? I mean, we would, we would be struck dead by, by the glory and majesty of God. But the day is coming when we will see God in His full glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And folks, there is no greater privilege that we as God's image bearers can enjoy than to be near to Him. Seeing Him, experiencing His glory is going to be an incredible blessing. Now, of course, the foundation of that privilege is ultimately God's acceptance, which is why I included that in the statement. We will see Him because He accepts us. So the only way a sinner can see God and not be terrified or destroyed is if Jesus accepts us. And Jesus assures us here that the pure in heart are accepted of God. And someday, I will see Him face to face. He will be pleased with me. And I will be with Him forever. But but while the ultimate fulfillment of that is, is clearly, I think, in eternity, I think there also is a sense in in which Jesus gives us a taste of this promise today. So James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So notice the connection there. He says, purify your hearts. And as you purify your heart, you can draw near to God. And what will God do? God will draw near to you. 
So, so as I pursue purity of heart, as I walk before God with a clear conscience, He draws near to me. And again, that is a great gift. Because God's nearness is so much more precious than any passing pleasure of sin that I can enjoy. To be near to my God, to experience His grace and His presence and the work of His Spirit in my life it is a wonderful gift. And, and all of it, as I experience the nearness of God, as I, you know, even as we worship God in this room together, it is all a foretaste of the perfection of that in glory. When we surround His throne and worship Him forever and ever, and, and we walk in the presence of our God. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, being pure in heart is not going to win you a lot of glory in this world. I mean, people could care less. But God approves. And, and God is thankful for the pure in heart. And then the, the, the next, uh, the seventh beatitude teaches that God's blessing rests on the peacemaker. So verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So so the way I would define this quality is is that a peacemaker is someone who pursues genuine reconciliation. Now, now all three of those words are very important. So so let's start with that word genuine. I I remember, uh, maybe some of you remember a few years ago, uh, Pastor Chris uh, taught through Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, during Sunday school. And I remember uh, him uh, making the distinction between a peacemaker and a peace faker. And, And that really stood out to me because... Because there's a lot of us that, that just don't enjoy conflict. You know, you know, and, and so when problems come up, when, when, when people sin, or when there's conflict in relationships, we just rather kind of sweep it under the rug. Pretend like it didn't happen, not talk about it, not address it, push it to the side. But that's not what Jesus has in mind here. That's not peacemaking, that's peace faking. And, and the reason I say that is because Uh, The only other place this word peacemaker is used in the New Testament is in Colossians 1, verse 20, which says of Jesus, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, there's our word, through the blood of his cross. And so think about our sin. Think about the hostility between God and sinners, and, and Jesus didn't just sweep our sins under the rug. He didn't ignore the problem. No, He shed His blood on the cross to bring genuine reconciliation between God and man. So Jesus is saying in our text that God loves someone who doesn't view relationships in terms of their own comfort. Now, sometimes it's a whole lot easier just to run from conflict. Pretend like it's not there, sweep it under the rug. And there is a place for sweeping some things under the rug, right? You know, so 1 Peter 5 and the Proverbs talk about love covers a multitude of sins. We don't need this massive confrontation for every time someone you know, makes a little remark they shouldn't make or, or things of that nature. But, but, when, but when real conflict arises, when there are patterns of sin, God says He loves people who love genuine unity, who who value people and who value relationships, and so they seek peace. They make peace. 
know, the idea here, you know, first of all, is just simply that they, 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 they watch their words. They watch their actions so as to avoid unnecessary conflict. But when conflicts do arise, the peacemaker does not just ignore it or, or put up with it. No, he works to resolve conflict. He pursues genuine reconciliation. Now, now I do want to just emphasize here that this genuine reconciliation is always rooted in righteousness. You can't have real reconciliation just by ignoring sin. So, So James 3 verse 17 says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. So so James says that purity takes precedence over peace. And in fact, you can't have real peace without purity. So so you can't build genuine unity in in your marriage, in your family, uh, within the church, on an impure foundation. So, So that means as well that a key feature of effective peacemaking is that we pursue genuine repentance. I think the classic example of this is found for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So so the backstory to this chapter is that uh, the Corinthians had said some really nasty things, made some harsh accusations against Paul, and it had splintered uh, the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. But Paul, in in 2 Corinthians 7, rejoices at at how uh, they had been reconciled together. And he tells us that they didn't reconcile by by everyone just pretending like nothing had ever happened. No, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 11 about the Corinthians, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, indignation at their sin, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, What vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this manner. So so the Corinthians, I mean, they didn't do what we we oftentimes do. You know, we we do something foolish, we do something sinful, and and, and we say, well, well, I I made a foolish decision. You know, it was just foolish, or, well, you know, I I probably shouldn't have done that, or it's no big deal. You know, it's not a big deal. Don't don't worry about it. Just, Just ignore it. That wasn't their attitude, right? They were angry at themselves over their sin. They they were zealous to to pursue genuine reconciliation with Paul. So so they faced their sin, they called it what it was, and they dealt with it. So, So I challenge you that if you want to be a peacemaker who receives God's blessing, that when you sin against someone, don't dismiss it. You know, don't pretend like it don't ha- didn't happen. Don't minimize how you sinned against someone else. No, own it. And, and, and take the consequences of it. Repent. And if someone you love is stuck in a sinful pattern or has committed some sort of serious offense, pursue genuine repentance. Because if you don't, it's just going to happen again. Right? If there's no repentance, the problem is just going to pop up over and over. And understand, there will be no true reconciliation until there is repentance. 
Now, now I recognize in, in all this stuff that it gets sticky really fast. All right? Now, you want to be a peacemaker? You're going to walk into all sorts of mess all the time. And, and I, I mean, I'm a pastor, all right? I mean, I, I understand this. Peacemaking is dirty business oftentimes. But you know what? People and relationships are worth it. They are worth the, the, the pain, the, the, the challenges of being a peacemaker. And in fact, as we read on in the sermon, we're going to see that Jesus is going to talk a lot about peacemaking. That's the only time he uses the word, but, but peacemaking is going to come up a lot later on in the sermon. Because Jesus understood and he believed that, that true godliness loves people. And godly people value strong relationships. And, and as well, the scriptures teach that true unity in your home in our church, and everywhere else, is a precious gift of God. I'm reminded of Psalm 133, which says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. I mean, isn't that true? You know, that, that man, when you're, in the, when you're just, when there's hostility, if you've ever been in a church where, where the church, I mean, they, they come and they meet in the same building, but, but they don't like each other. It's, it's hard to be in that context. If that's how your home is, how your marriage is, it's no fun at all. So, so true unity is a precious gift, and, and when we have it, we ought to rejoice in it. And we ought to pursue it. If we love people, we love God, we will desire to be peacemakers. And notice, as such, the blessing that Jesus pronounces, that when we are peacemakers, we are a true reflection of the Father, and we are accepted by Him. That's kind of a wordy definition, but the promise He gives in verse 9 is, for they shall be called sons of God. And the reason uh, that I've said it this way is because in Jewish thought, the idea of sonship uh, wasn't so much about genetic relationship. You know, being someone's son wasn't so much that, that he's your dad and you're his child, uh, so much as, it, as, as being a son communicates the fact that you are a reflection of, of your father. So, when Jesus says, you will be called sons of God, it's not just that, that, that we are his children. No, the primary sense is that a peacemaker is a unique reflection of the character and nature of God. Now, now when I was studying through this this week, that really struck me as surprising. Because this is a pretty precious promise. So why would God reserve you will be called sons of God for the peacemaker. Well, obviously it means that peacemaking is a whole lot more important to God than it is to Kit Johnson. You know, and we're, we live in Americans, we are very individualistic. We like to be a, you know, a, you know, a, a world to ourselves and, and we don't need anyone and, and we don't need unity and, and relationships. I, you know, I've got everything in me. But that's not how God thinks. Relationships are very important to God. 
And, and the sermon is going to bear this out again. That, that, that true unity and, and genuine love are vital aspects of godliness. Vital. And, and God loves the peacemaker. He accepts the peacemaker. And the peacemaker is a unique reflection of the character of God. I mean, think of you know, John 13. What does Jesus say? By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Of course, no one's going to see that you love one another if you're not at peace. So, so one of the primary ways that we show the world that we belong to God is by being people who dwell in unity, who resolve conflicts, who fix them and pursue genuine unity and love. So, so be a peacemaker, all right? I mean, when, when conflicts arise, you know, someone sins against you, you know, don't just cross your arms and say, well, by golly, if he wants to get right with me, I'm here. But I'm not moving an inch. He's got to come begging. And when he comes begging, we'll get it right. No, go after people. Pursue repentance and reconciliation. And if you have damaged a relationship with someone, it might be that that 80% of the blame lies with them and 20% lies with you. And and you're like, I'm here. but, But until he recognizes what he did, I'm not saying anything about what I did. No. Don't excuse your sin. Don't minimize your sin. Fall on the sword. Own how you sinned and pursue real reconciliation and unity. And if you have friends, you know, you're not the one at odds. You've got buddies that are over here and you know, this guy's over here and that guy's over there and they're at odds with each other. You know, don't be afraid to get dirty. And you might get dirty if you step into that conflict and try and resolve it. But, but, but people matter. Relationships matter. So step in and be a peacemaker. Because, folks, love is at the heart of godliness. And strong relationships are essential to spiritual growth. I mean, they're essential to the mission of the church. We cannot be who we are called to be as a church if we are at odds with each other. So let's value relationships and let's pursue the things that make for peace. So, so be a peacemaker. And then finally, next week, uh, we'll, we'll get to verse 10, uh, because verse 10 is the final beatitude, but really uh, then verses 11 and 12 explain what it means. So, so as we close today, I mean, here's my summary of the basic message of the beatitudes. God blesses those who are marked by humble sincerity before God and man. God's blessing rests on those who are marked by humble sincerity before God and before man. So I want to challenge you to be that person. Be humble. Don't chase the world's definition of greatness and godliness. No, chase the qualities that are near to the heart of the Savior. And, 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 and be someone who is humble. Be someone who is sincere. Be someone who honors the Lord and who lives right with others. And as you do, you can be assured that God sees, God approves, even if no one else does. And His blessing rests on you.
Father, thank you for uh, this word. Thank you for the challenge that Jesus provides in these verses. And Lord, I thank you that you are merciful to us. And Father, I thank you that you see us perfectly. You are a generous, kind, caring God. And Father, I pray that you would help us by your grace to live out these qualities. Father, I pray that we would not let sin fester in our hearts. We would not let sin divide our relationships with people or with you. But that, Lord, we would seek to walk in humble sincerity before God and man. And so help us this week to put these verses into practice. And help us to live with the assurance and the hope that you will fulfill every promise that you have given us in your word. In Christ's name, amen.